0: awesome. Thank you, Jonathan and team. You may be seated. Before I pray, I want to tell you something happened to me this week that I found fascinating and deeply moving. Uh, Rhonda and I attended a graveside graveside service of a woman in our church who had recently died, uh, Ginny Adair. She was 94 years old. And I learned at the Gradeside service that she had been serving in our children's ministry for 50 years. Yeah, amen. 50 consecutive years. The stories uh, people shared uh, in that small service about her love for Jesus, her ministry to children, Uh, just amazing and I know today is a, a different day and one of the crosswinds that is blowing is we are becoming increasingly a people in this culture that seek to receive rather than seek to give do you see that it's really all around us in all sorts of different ways And so I come to you today because we have a Wheaton Bible Church uh, family issue that we need to address. And that is for a number of weeks now, and uh, what will become increasingly true if things don't change as we move into the fall, is that every Sunday we are telling families, uh, we are telling children that we don't have the capacity for them here at Wheaton Bible Church for Children's Sunday School. And every Sunday we're turning away people and it's July and August. And so I want to appeal to you and I know COVID's going on and I know we have concerns, but I want to appeal to you as you receive to give. We need actually several hundred people to volunteer and serve in our children's ministry. Now think of, Jenny Adair for a minute. For 50 years, she prayed for our children. For 50 years, she listened to them, encouraged them. For 50 years, she led children to Jesus. For 50 years, she discipled them. And I want to invite you to prayerfully consider joining our disciple-making team in our children's ministry our disciple-making team that serves as greeters, welcoming people, getting to know people, developing relationships and connections for people that will be coming to Wheaton Bible Church, for our tech teams, that really make Sunday mornings happen. And more and more people will be needed as we go back to our old schedule and uh, traditional worship will meet over in the East space and we will meet here in the West Auditorium for Contemporary. Would you join me in praying that God would raise up hundreds of people to step in because we love Jesus. We're committed to give as we have received so much. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that you have given us your Son who willingly gave his life that we might find life, forgiveness, redemption, adoption, that we might become a new creation in him. And we pray for these needs as we move into the fall, and every church is going through this right now, and it's especially acute because of COVID. And we pray, God, that you would raise up the people among us that can minister, that can serve and pray and give. We thank you that you have been so faithful and uh, the wonderful people of Wheaton Bible Church have done so much in years past. Now God, prove yourself faithful. We don't want to turn away anybody. We don't want to turn away any child. And Father, we pray today that you would give us better hearts. That you would so work that you would give us hearts that love God more and hate sin more. And whatever you deny us, and you will deny us circumstances and things in our lives, don't deny this request. Change our hearts that we might see and serve our risen Savior. We pray this morning for the difficulties our ministry partners are are experiencing in the two countries of Uganda and Kenya with the inability for people to get vaccinated and the uh, rising number of cases of COVID and then on top of that the food shortages because of the drought. And we pray that you would give our partners wisdom and we pray that it would begin to rain and vaccines would become available. And Jesus Christ would be lifted up in the wonderful churches and ministries in Kenya and Uganda. And Father, I want to pray for our people that are here today and ask that you would bless them. You would draw them closer to you. You would heal where there's a need for healing. You would comfort where there's a need for comfort. You would give strength and courage. That you would deliver us from the growing incidences of anxiety and depression. And that you would change us. That we would become more like your son. And we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. That's because I was standing in the way, right? That's what Rhonda says all the time. Not really. So, over the years, I have loved reading about different United States presidents. Uh, Many of their lives are just totally fascinating. One of our most colorful presidents was our seventh president, Andrew Jackson. He was nicknamed Old Hickory because of his tree like toughness. But boy, did he suffer! Two weeks before he was born, his father died. When he was 14, he and his older brother served in the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War, and they were captured by the British, mistreated by the British, and then reluctantly released by the British because both of them came down with smallpox. Andrew Jackson's brother never uh, recovered and he died. A week after his brother died, Andrew Jackson's mother died. A year before that, his only other sibling died. When Andrew Jackson was 14, he was all alone in the world, yet he would go on to become one of the most popular, one of the most loved presidents in the history of the United States. And that, in spite of the fact, and here's the kicker, just a couple days before he took office, I'm talking White House, Oval Office, his wife died. And the whole time he was in office, he battled tuberculosis. Andrew Jackson was a remarkable man. In the Old Testament, we meet an even more remarkable man, at least I think, by the name of Joseph, who, like Andrew Jackson, experienced and overcame multiple, multiple, I mean, personal tragedies. And Joseph went on to become one of the great leaders in the ancient kingdom of Egypt. As a matter of fact, second only to Pharaoh, even though he was a Jew. And yet Joseph was different than Andrew Jackson because Joseph was not only a a brilliant political leader, he was a thoroughly and publicly godly man. And what went on inside Joseph, I mean inside his heart, in terms of his vision of God, his confidence in the character of God, made Joseph shine like a star in the dark universe of Egypt. And over the decades of my ministry, I have gone back to Joseph over and over. I have probably preached more sermons on Joseph than any other single human character in the Old Testament because Joseph has become a really good friend. And God, the Spirit has used uh, the life and the, the stories, the narratives of Joseph to give me a great picture of what confidence in the character of God looks like. What it looks like lived out. And so as I begin to wind up my ministry here at Wheaton Bible Church with this four-week series in terms of what I wish for you, uh, my letters, if you will, to you, I want to start with Joseph. Because I wish for you his confidence, his experience with the person of God. Now as I go through this today, I know some of you may have some uh, notes from a, a message or two. I haven't preached on Joseph in some years, but, but I have preached here on Joseph. Just as last April, I had the privilege of speaking in California on Joseph, so this is real for me, guys, and I want it to be real for you. let's start with genesis chapter thirty nine If you have your bibles turn to genesis thirty nine we're going to look at three different episodes in the life of this man, this his amazing story. And when we come to genesis thirty nine it's about nineteen hundred. B.C., so it's not quite 4,000 years ago, and Joseph, get this, is only 18 or 19. I mean, he's just got his driver's license a couple of years ago, this high school diploma. And we know this, we know he's so young because two chapters earlier, Genesis 37, we are told it was when Joseph was 17 that he was betrayed by every single one of his 11 brothers Because they couldn't stand the sight of him. They wanted to get rid of him. So they sold him into slavery because of the unusual disproportionate favor Joseph was receiving from their father. And they resented it. They hated it. And can you imagine selling your brother into slavery? An outrageous hate crime in any culture, but especially in an ancient culture where family was everything. So when we come to chapter 39, Joseph's just now a couple years older. Like I said, 18, 19, he's still a teenager. And what we see is Joseph is young, Joseph is raw, Joseph is wounded, but what we discover is this guy is a spiritual rock at a young age, and I mean it's remarkable. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 39. I'm going to read a couple sections here. Would you stand with me out of respect for God's word? Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Now the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Verse 6. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate, From me, except you. And I love this line. Because you're his wife. Get with it, woman. How then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. Now, his rejection creates her resentment. And so because she resents being scorned, Shakespeare has a line about that, she wants to hurt Joseph. It's a typical cycle. I've been rejected, I resent the rejection, and therefore I'm going to hurt. And she makes up a lie about Joseph that she tells her husband. Now two verses, verse 19. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave, that would be Joseph, treated me, it was all fabrication. He, that is Potiphar, burned with anger. So Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And that's God's word. You may be seated. Now lots of people begin the spiritual life full of resolve, I mean spiritual resolve. Man, I'm going to climb any mountain for Jesus. But then over the years, this thing called life happens. Hardship, conflict, bewildering changes and circumstances. And some of that early spiritual resolve begins to evaporate. And in some cases, and I've seen too many of these over the years, in some cases people become disappointed, they become angry, they become bitter. And worse of all, they become angry and bitter at God. I mean, Joseph could have said by rights, God, where are you? My entire sibling group betrayed me. I'm no longer in my homeland. I'm no longer with my father. I I, I was a slave here in Egypt, and just as things were starting to go well, and I did what was right in a moment of temptation, I got thrown into prison for a crime I didn't commit. Uh, God, and these are the words of Isaiah, why is my way disregarded by my God? Why have you hidden yourself from me? We all struggle with that. Joseph could have said that. If any teenager had a so-called right to be angry with God, to be bitter towards God, to rebel against God, uh, to medicate the pain with a little sexual pleasure, it would have been Joseph. But look at what we see about Joseph's heart in verse 8. The first three words, but he refused. You say, what in the world does that have to do with his heart? Everything. Joseph refused this temptation. Remarkable at any age, but especially at Joseph's. Now, over the years I've read some on ethics and virtue and a common definition of Virtue. Uh, Maybe the most popular definition of virtue is the ability to delay gratification. To say no, uh, to refuse as Joseph refuses here. Now that's especially true, it's especially important when you're facing sexual temptation. uh, To tell yourself this isn't right and uh, I will wait for what is right. But what I want you to see here in the text, uh, uh, there emerges a deeper, more profound definition of virtue that takes us to the holy of holies. In the last sentence of verse 9, we read this, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Do you see virtue I could say spiritual maturity, uh, uh, godliness, isn't just the willingness to delay gratification. It's the unwillingness to violate the holiness of God. The unwillingness to violate the holiness of God is not merely a horizontal thing. Ultimately, for those of us that know Jesus Christ, it's a vertical thing. I'm not going to do this and throw it in your face. So confident are you, like Joseph, in the character of God. It's so real to you. Verse 9 suggests, or uh, this last sentence in verse 9, that there were two parallel tracks that had formed convictions in Joseph's experience that made him who he was as an 18-year-old. And the first is he was deeply convicted about the sinfulness of sin. And the second, deeply convicted about the holiness of God. You you know what uh, one way to think about sin is? uh, uh, Sin is telling yourself what God said is wrong isn't really wrong. And you play loose. And the holiness of God, and I want you to understand that because I think this, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding today about the holiness of God. The holiness of God isn't just the might and the majesty and the mystery of God. It's also the mercy of God, the goodness of God. And so Joseph understood his God to be his mighty creator and his merciful father. And Joseph uh, overcame this temptation because of his conviction about the sinfulness of sin and his understanding of the holiness of God, mighty and merciful. Now, uh, let me just talk about uh, uh, temptation and the role of your mind for just a moment. God has given you your mind as the first defense against temptation. But it requires seeing sin as always sinful And God is always holy. And it's your mind, when it's filled with these twin truths of the the dark tendencies of your heart, I know my heart, I know my tendency is towards evil, and the beauty and the mercy and the wonder of your Savior, Jesus Christ, that keeps your uh, desires from dominating and your will from capitulating in that hot moment. I mean that moment of temptation. Joseph, 18 years old, was shaken to the core about how much his holy God hates sin. And I say this because I want you to understand overcoming temptation isn't merely something you do, it's ultimately something you believe. Are you confident in the character of God? You see, your your vision of God, uh, your your confidence, uh, not just intellectually, but experientially or existentially, in the character of God is the single most important thing about you. And so therefore we learn in this first story, when you see God as holy, and you feel it, Mighty and merciful, you will be pure. Now let's go on to the second episode. It's two chapters later. It's Genesis 41. Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, has had two disturbing dreams. One is about two different types of cows. The other is about two different types of grain. In both cases, one type is healthy and the other type is unhealthy. So Joseph, or Pharaoh goes to his court to the wise men of Egypt. Not a single one could interpret the dream. But while Joseph has been in prison, and when we come to chapter 41, Joseph has now been in prison for 10 years. That's me. That means from the time he was 18 or 19 all the way through his 20s, some of the best years of his life, He spent in a rat hole of a prison in Egypt. But while he was in prison, God gave Joseph the supernatural ability to interpret dreams, and he did. And ultimately, that got conveyed to to Pharaoh by one of his closest confidants, his cupbearer. And Pharaoh says, okay, I want to talk to this Joseph. Joseph. And so let's pick it up here in chapter 41 in verse 14. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And can you imagine what Joseph is feeling? Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one, no one can interpret it, it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, prisons are never pretty places. But can you imagine 4,000 years ago? Yet suddenly, I mean, picture this, Joseph and nobody, a foreigner, or a Jew is brought before the Egyptian ruler at that stage in human history, arguably the most powerful person on the planet, this Pharaoh. And I don't know about you, but if I'm Joseph, there's one thing I'm thinking, I'm thinking, whatever you do, don't upset Pharaoh. uh, Because maybe you'll get freed. I, I mean, if Pharaoh is a... Packer fan, don't talk about the bears, you know. Uh, Be careful, be smart, and you might be freed. Uh Uh-uh. No, not Joseph. Look at verse 16. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Now, Pharaoh believed in a variety of different gods and goddesses like all Egyptians, but the one God he didn't believe in was the God of the Jews. So Joseph, the first words out of his mouth, he talks about his God, the God of the Jews, Elohim. And he says, my God, this God of the Jews, Elohim, he alone, not any of your gods or goddesses, he alone can interpret your dream. As a matter of fact, Pharaoh, he will do it. Now, amazingly, there is no sense of fear or intimidation with Joseph here. Now, those of you that have tough jobs in tough places, And you work around tough people or you have tough people above you or you have family members or or classmates or or teachers or, or neighbors who don't believe in Jesus and sometimes make it tough for you. You know what our tendency is? And to my shame, this has been my tendency too many times over the years. Our tendency is to go silent. and not to talk to them about our precious Savior. And you know why? Because often I'm just afraid. I'm afraid of what they might think. (laughs) But not Joseph. Here Joseph takes a risk. I mean a big risk. Here he may be risking his life. Clearly Joseph failed sensitivity training. Clearly, he fails to be politically correct. Because he not only talks about the God of the Jews, he speaks experientially and gives all God all the credit. I can't do it, but God can. All the credit for interpreting dreams. Now, do you see what's going on here? Joseph is sharing his testimony. That's all. He's sharing his heart. He's sharing about the wonder of all that God has done for him. He's sharing in such humility his absolute dependence on the power of the very God, get this, who kept him in prison for ten years. And regardless of the difficulty of the circumstance, regardless of how dark his days, he never wavered in his absolute dependence on the power of God. Remarkable. Why was Joseph so bold? Why was he so fearless? Well, as I just said, not only did he believe in the holiness of God, he he, he believed in uh, uh, the power of God the omnipotence of God, theologians say. But what I want you to see here is Joseph is staking his future, his entire life, on the power of God. Now how? How did he get to this point? Well, he knew the stories. He knew, for example, that God had appeared to his great-grandfather Abraham and told Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. He knew that God showed up in in incarnation uh, with two angels, one dusty, humid, hot afternoon. And not only did he appear to Abraham in the flesh, he ate with Abraham, and then he went on to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sexual sin of homosexuality. Uh, Joseph knew that his grandfather Isaac had been conceived miraculously because Abraham and Sarah were too old. They were decades past. Childbearing years. I mean, Abraham was 100. He makes me look like a punk. Uh, uh, Joseph knew that his father Isaac had experienced an incredible miracle when God began to multiply his herds uh, and his flocks in a way the world had never seen. And Joseph knew that the reason his dad, Jacob, walked with a limp is because he had wrestled with God. Joseph knew the stories about the power of God and he believed them. Do you? Do you functionally, I'm not talking theoretically, I'm not talking abstractly, there's too much of that. Do you functionally believe in the power of God? It didn't matter that he'd been abandoned, it didn't matter that he'd been alone, it didn't matter that he'd been betrayed, it didn't matter that he'd been in prison for 10 years for a crime he didn't commit. Joseph lived moment by moment, day after day, in dependence on the power of God. And here in chapter 41, he stakes his life on it. Uh, Do you have this confidence in the character of God? Is God real to you in your experience? Do you believe that God will answer your prayers in his way and in his time to be sure? But he hears you and he is working, asking it y'all be given. Do you believe God is protecting you? Do you believe God is going to see you through the other side of whatever the X is in your life that you're going through, no matter how bad it is? If we believed in the power of God, think of what it would do for us in our anxious moments when we tend to get anxious and worried, fearful and depressed. This is remarkable. And this is why I say to you, God the Spirit has used Joseph to transform me. And I'm going to say it again, your vision of God will be, will be the most important thing about you every moment of the rest of your life. And so what we see here in the second narrative is that when you see God as powerful, you will be bold. I mean, you will step out of your comfort zone. Uh, You will take risks. You will share your testimony. You will talk about the wonder of the mercy you have received. And you will stand up. And friends, if there's anything Our culture needs from us as believers today, it is believers that believe in the power of God. We're not being wiped out, we're facing headwinds, but Jesus will build his church. So, will you be bold? Will you take those risks? Will you pray down thunder? Now let's go on. Let's go to Genesis chapter, let me back up for a second. Let's go to Genesis chapter 50. This is the last chapter in the book of Genesis. Joseph is now at the top of his game. I mean, Joseph is the number two man in all of Egypt. uh, Joseph now has the world at his fingertips. By, By the way, it's been said To see a man, to see a woman humble in prosperity is one of the greatest rarities in the world because power corrupts, wealth corrupts, but it didn't corrupt Joseph. So here in Genesis 50, Joseph now faces the 11 brothers that betrayed him And let's pick it up in verse 19. If I can get there. But Joseph said to them, said to his brothers, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Now you need to understand that's a huge statement of humility. Pharaoh would say, yes, I am in the place of God. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Uh, Through Joseph's brilliance, uh, Egypt is now filled with storehouses of grain, and people, instead of starving to death, are being fed. And that's what Joseph is talking about here. So verse 21, so then don't be afraid. I will provide food for you and your children, shelter. And he reassured them, and then we read, and he spoke kindly to them. Joseph believed in uh, uh, the holiness of God, his might and his mercy, and it made him pure. He believed in uh, the power of God, and it made him bold. He didn't care who was standing before Pharaoh. And now what we see here in chapter 50 is he believed in the sovereign mercy of God. And what did it do? It made him merciful. Forgiving. Generous kind. I will provide for you and your children. Who says that after what Joseph has been through? But now let's back up and here's where I want to go. I want you to see, no I got to back up. Um, Verse 20. This is my favorite verse in the Joseph story. Uh, Joseph says, man, uh, you guys intended to harm me, but God, God intended it for good. Do you see what's going on here? Joseph's taking secularism, I mean our modern secularism, and throwing it to the ground, shattering it in pieces. He's taking atheism, throwing it to the ground. Joseph is asserting there is a God, and we know that by the order and the harmony and beauty and creation. Uh, Joseph didn't say that. That's what I'm saying. There is one God, and this one God is good, but God intended it for good. And Joseph is also saying that he is totally sovereign, He controls all things. He adorns all things. He ordains all things. And he is always, always loving. I want you to see this verse as an Old Testament illustration of Romans 8.28. And we know, and we know, Paul is saying in Romans 8.28 when he says, and we know, he's saying, we're confident in the character of God. And we know that in all things, in all things, in every single detail of your life, God works together for good. This illustrates that. Now over the years, I'm going to speak honestly for a moment, over the years, uh, God has given me a wonderful confidence in His sovereignty. I've had some difficult things happen and I've just had this, uh, God's given me this grace. Uh, I didn't earn it, I didn't deserve it, but uh, a solid confidence in the sovereignty of God. But you know what's happened uh, more, uh, more recently, I mean, the last uh, years, is I have enjoyed seeing how the Bible couples the sovereignty of God with the mercy of God. And so over and over, we see God sovereign in mercy and merciful in his sovereignty. And that's what Joseph is saying. God isn't some distant, aloof being that pulls all the strings. Yes, he is a sovereign, but he is loving and he is good and he is compassion and he is near and he is humble. Jesus says, talking about his heart, I'm gentle, humble of a heart. And this vision, and here's where I go with Joseph this vision of the sovereign mercy of God, the compassion of God, is what enabled Joseph to overcome the most turbulent waters in his life and to extend mercy and forgiveness and grace to the very people that had hurt him the most. Your vision of God isn't just the most important thing about you, friends. And I want this for you it is the only thing that will heal your soul and make you whole and so therefore from chapter 50 this is what we learned when you see God is sovereignly merciful you will be forgiving you will be merciful you will be uh, compassionate you will not hold grudges now I want to pivot And I want to take a couple minutes to talk about something really important here because I do not want you to understand. I'm going to come back to this in a couple of weeks and and fill it out in more detail. God didn't merely give us these Old Testament stories, like these stories of Joseph. Uh, to, uh, so, you would say to yourself, okay, now I got to suck it up and I got to try harder and I got to be like Joseph. Now, of course, God wants us to learn from these examples. And I have said Joseph has been a wonderful mentor in the way he has discipled me. But more importantly, God has given us these stories, not just so we learn the examples, but we learn how they point to Jesus and what they tell us about Jesus. Twice in the Gospels, John, Luke, Jesus tells us that all the Old Testament points to him. And so the Old Testament and the New Testament are not two different stories, but one story, and Jesus is the center of that story, and Jesus is the hero of that story. Not Joseph, not Joshua, not Jeremiah, not Isaiah. So when we come to a story like this, we want to ask ourselves, how is Jesus the true and better Joseph? And so we want to ask ourselves, instead of focusing what I must do, what does this tell me about what Jesus, from the perspective of Joseph, will do from our perspective, what Jesus has already done? So let's go back through the three. Genesis 39, Uh, Joseph's purity, in the face of temptation, doesn't it point to the infinitely greater and perfect purity of Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness all the way through his death on the cross? Never once did Jesus sin, never once did Jesus compromise with evil. Why? So that by his perfect obedience he might fulfill the righteous demands of the law on your behalf so that the moment you believe in Jesus, you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and if you haven't come to Jesus, receive him as your King, your Savior, so that the moment you believe in Jesus, God takes away your sin, and he gives you the righteousness of Jesus Christ, so you are seen as totally righteous in in Christ, in the sight of God. In other words, Joseph's obedience points at infinitely greater obedience of Jesus, and when you begin to think, you know, Jesus lived that way for me every second of his life, he was intentionally obedient in order that he might give me a righteousness I can't earn and deserve, then that's going to melt your heart and you are going, and here we are again, you're going to want to be pure. Episode number two, chapter 41, Joseph's boldness before Pharaoh doesn't point to the infinitely greater boldness of Jesus Christ who left the splendor of heaven. Became a man, And allowed himself to be rejected, tortured, and murdered by sinful humans? Talk about confidence and the power of God. That's the theme of chapter forty-one. The intensity of the agony that Jesus Christ would experience on the cross as he died in your place for your sins, as he died for you, was so great that prior to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, even thinking about it, caused blood vessels on the surface of Jesus' skin to burst. And so the Bible tells us he sweat drops of blood. Yes, Joseph was horribly abandoned, but never was anyone so abandoned. Never did anyone experience such agony as Jesus when he died for you. And if, if this continues to stir your heart and light your life, how then could you not boldly stand, publicly stand for our Savior? Chapter 50, Jesus, the the true and better Joseph, doesn't merely sit at the right hand of Pharaoh. He sits at the right hand of God, and he doesn't uh, merely forgive 11 uh, brothers. He forgives all who betrayed him. And, And the Bible tells us that the moment we believe, he redeems us. He renews us. He makes us new creatures in Christ. He adopts us into his family. And we become his children and he showers us and will shower us throughout eternity with perfect love. Joseph's mercy points to the infinitely greater mercy of Jesus who said in Matthew 11, come. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you the ability to say it's okay, to be whole, to be at peace. Your confidence in your communion with Jesus is the most important thing about you. And when you eat the food of the king, you will not look for food elsewhere. Amen? So, Father, take your word. Change us. Uh, Deliver us from our chronic unbelief, from um, uh, uh, this belief in a small God, Work in our lives that we might see you in your fullness and your glory. And we pray in Jesus' incredible name, Jesus' great name, and we thank you for all that you have done, are doing, and will do in us and for us through our Savior. Amen.